Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 195 of Just the Zoo of Us. This week, I'm joined by a guest who brings her experience working alongside and educating people about one of our world's most misunderstood, maligned, and magical creatures, gray wolves. We're not just talking teeth and claws and fluffy coats. We're also discussing alliances with crows, howls that rattle your very soul, the irreplaceable ecological role of wolves, their conflicts with humans, and how we can all make peace with our wild neighbors. So get cozy with your pack in a nice warm den. Just the Zoo of Us presents Gray Wolves with Danielle Larocque. This is Ellen Weatherford here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, and I'm really excited this week to be talking to a brand new friend. This is Danielle LaRock. Say hi, Danielle. Hello, everyone. And Danielle, what are your pronouns real quick? She, her. Thank you so much. And your voice is probably not unfamiliar to a lot of our listeners because people have probably heard you at National Park After Dark, which is uh, one of the top nature podcasts. (laughs) Which is so bizarre to hear you say that, (laughs) just so you know. It's so exciting. I'm really excited to finally get to talk to you. Uh, Before we talk about our animal for today, let's get to know you a little bit. Have you always been a nature and animal person? Definitely. I was definitely the kid that... I spent a lot of time alone when I was young. I wasn't a super social kid, and I was always drawn to the outdoors, nature, learning about animals, learning about their environment type of... I was a pretty nerdy kid. I'm sure nobody listening can relate to that. Yeah, no one at all. It couldn't be me. I found my people. (laughs) So always been drawn to animals and nature. And just as I've gotten older, I've just become more and more fascinated with them, the more and more I learn about them. I think that as kids, you know, like, when we're young, so much of like our imagination and like sense of adventure and wonder just like pulls us out into the wild. Absolutely. And mine started with horses. Horses! Yep, I was a horse girl when I was young. And my first job was exchanging. um, I mean, I was 12. So I wasn't legally working, but I would muck stalls in exchange for riding lessons. And that kind of just progressed. And I started doing, you know, hunter jumper shows and working with horses and riding competitively. And from there, it just kind of switched to wanting to care for them more. And as far as not just doing general upkeep, I wanted to make sure that I could help save them and care for them if they were sick. So I started doing, you know, volunteering at animal shelters, things like that. And then I went to school for biology and environmental science. And then I worked as a veterinary nurse right after school. That's awesome. Veterinarian is like like domesticated pets or like wildlife? Yes, small animal. So when I was in college, when I was first, what is it, like junior year or so of high school, you're like, where am I going to go? What am I going to do with my life? The whole existential crisis. Um, <laughs> and I always knew that, well, I guess I had two paths. I either wanted to do wildlife work 
or I wanted to do funerary and forensic work. So I either wanted to do the death industry or the wildlife world. And I kind of leaned more towards a very broad like biology and environmental science. There's so many things you can do with that, you know? Right. So I did that. I went to school in New Hampshire, got my undergrad in that. And they didn't have many wildlife focused areas of study. I mean, yeah, I took, you know, zoology, ornithology, vertebrae sciences, whatever I could, but I had a pretty broad degree. You know, some people who have the same exact degree as me went and did pharmaceuticals Mm. or, you know, totally different worlds. So after school, I decided to work as a veterinary technician at an animal hospital for dogs and cats, so small animal. But I always had this like, I really want to do something in wildlife conservation. So I did a couple of working interviews and things like that at different sanctuaries around the country because I didn't know what species I wanted to work with. I was all over the map. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm going to go to this tiger sanctuary and then they have lions and oh, they have wolves there. And uh, should I go to Africa and do something there? And I was just all over the map. Just I'm a Sagittarius. I pick (laughs) up interests. I'm super enthralled in them for a little while and then drop them. Go on to the next thing. That is very relatable as somebody with ADHD. I can feel that so good. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's like you just want to do it all. It's not that it's not interesting anymore. It's just you want to have so many hands in all the different pots. But it's also helpful to give you a really broad knowledge base to pull from, right? Exactly. Like if you yeah. know a little bit about a lot of things, then like that's really good for like synthesizing information, right? Like when you come across something new, you can be like, oh, that reminds me of this thing, you know, in a completely unrelated field. And you can start to like make connections. As well. I think there's value in like having a broad knowledge base. Thank you. I feel so much better now. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great take on it for sure. Yeah, so there was just one animal that always kind of stuck with me as I was kind of honing in. I just felt this pull of, you know, I was working as a vet tech. I loved it. I loved being able to see a sick animal in the morning and discharge them and they're better in the same day. But my mind kind of was like, you know what? People love dogs and cats here. Dogs and cats are not in trouble (laughs) here in the U.S., I'm like, so what, where can I best put my heart and efforts and dedication to? Who really needs it? And that was the wolf. And that was the launching point of my journey with the gray wolf. I feel like a lot of people have a pull towards the wolf because I think it just speaks to a lot of like traits that people are really enthralled by, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like they have those canine features that we've kind of like evolved alongside dogs to love, right? It's like, it's giving puppy, right? (laughs) Right, yes. (laughs) Definitely have that sort of feeling of like, that's my friend. But they're also like mysterious and aloof a little bit and like have that like majesty and like power about them that is like, I I get where that, that draw comes from. Yeah, and that's also another really important piece of my affinity towards them is Mm -hmm. because there is that 100%. People go to wolf sanctuaries and and zoos and different places where wolves are housed, where we can view them. Even Yellowstone, wild wolves. I mean, a huge draw of Yellowstone is going to see the wolves in their natural habitat. And people are so drawn to them because of what you said. Many of us have their long-distance domestic counterparts. Mm -hmm. And yet they are so vilified 
and have had such a difficult time as far as our relationship with them throughout history here in America. I'm basing a lot of this in the United States, obviously, Mm -hmm. but so persecuted, heavily hated and misunderstood and, you know, extirpated for the most part here in the lower 48, yet we love and dote on and adore a version of them. Yeah. And it's like, where is that disconnect? And what is happening? And how can I help fill in the gaps of misunderstanding? And that is really why I was so drawn to wanting to work with them, not only because they're awesome to be around, right? (laughs) but because I wanted to help them in a greater way than just caring for a few individuals and make sure they have a good life. Mm -hmm. I wanted to teach people about them and use those individuals as ambassadors for their species. And what did that look like to you? Was that like in a captive setting? Yeah. So my journey with them started here in Colorado. Once I was working for about a year, year and a half as a vet tech in New Hampshire, and I felt that pull. What I was doing is I was going on the AZA website, Association of Zoos and Aquariums. We stand. Yes, we love them. <laughs> yeah. So I had no connections. I didn't know where to start. So I went on the AZA website and just went to their jobs and internships and just kind of was browsing. I'm like, what opportunities are out there for me? And where can I kind of get my foot in the door? Because, yeah, I've worked with animals, but working with a domestic cat or dog in a veterinary in a hospital setting has nothing to do with wolves. So I saw a posting for an internship opportunity at the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center in Divide, and it was a three-month internship opening, and I went out there with my mom just to be like – because I I can't go in blind somewhere. I'm just not right. built that way. Um, So we went out there just to check out the area, the sanctuary, see what it was all about. I, you know, was there one day. I was like, this is it. I'm going to do this. <laughs> the, like, rays of sunshine down from the clouds parting and <laughs> yes. a choir of angels singing. and <laughs> oh, Yeah, exactly. And I just – it just felt right. A few months later, I packed up my two-door Jeep Wrangler with my stuff, and I drove cross-country, set up, and started my internship, which was, like many internships are, heavily uh, manual labor-based. So I did a lot of, yeah, I was working with the wolves in a very small capacity at that point in time, but just doing general upkeep and husbandry tasks and things like that. And part of the deal was learning to do educational tours of the facility. And I remember I was so nervous because I was like, (laughs) not only did I have to get to know every animal, where they came from, what their stories were, we, every single animal had kind of served as this launch point for a bigger discussion. So this is Princess. She's an Arctic wolf. She's, you know, da-da-da-da-da. But she came from a photo farm. Do you know what photo farms are? And then we talk about that. Or, you know, this is um, Dakota. He came from a fur farm. Mm. Do you know what a fur farm is? You know, things like that. So, you know, to talk to hundreds of people every day for an hour straight about things that are important to me, they don't know about, I want them to leave feeling educated and inspired. It was a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so after I did that, probably about two and a half months into my internship, Darlene, the owner and founder of the center, offered me a job. 
So I was like, I guess I'm making it work. And I just, I ended up staying for years. And that was that. It sounds like, you know, now that you're a podcaster, right? You're, You're working on like educating people. It's like a way to share your passion with people, right? And like, inspire the same passion in other people. I bet probably a lot of people came away from that really enriched by getting to like leech some of that (laughs) enthusiasm away from you. (laughs) Yeah, a thousand percent. And that was just like the hope, you know, some Mm -hmm. people I could tell like, were in the back of the group, like couldn't roll their eyes harder or like could care less. And you know, they were there because they're wife or partner or whoever dragged them there and sure and those were the people I always wanted to get to the most like if there's just one thing you can take out of this day I have succeeded you know yeah. and um, wolves are a hard sell for some people just because of people are afraid of them and right. you know you grow up learning about the big bad wolf and that subconsciously translates yeah the wolf was kind of like this stand-in for evil i think in a mm-hmm. lot of our folklore which i'm pretty sure comes from like a european background of like livestock farmers and stuff for whom the wolf was seen as like something that's going to come in and like consume all of your livestock and then you know there's like a big conflict with them there and then they just become the stand-in for evil so it's like you are kind of primed from childhood to see the wolf as this sort of like intimidating and scary and antagonistic character mm-hmm. and then if you were to see them with just a blank slate no preconceptions or anything like that you just be like this is a gorgeous beautiful animal a thousand percent and that is kind of like you're re-educating people and you're making them see through different lenses and you know it's always going to be a battle as we see playing out even today i mean in colorado we just passed reintroducing them here in the state and it passed by like one percent it is just they are such a divisive subject they really are and it just goes to show you know that simple like should we reintroduce them yes or no and 49 percent of people said no and 51 said yes like that is a really really small margin and it just shows kind of how far like we have and haven't come i guess when it comes to understanding them And when I hear wolf reintroduction, I think of like the classic sort of story of the Yellowstone wolves. You know, wolves get, like you mentioned, extirpated. So like there's no wolves left in this area. And then everything kind of falls apart and like the ecosystem sort of degrades. And then the reintroduction of wolves helped everything come back to life. And this is just something that I've kind of like heard mentioned before. So I don't know if that's something that you can expand on for me a little bit. Yeah, so wolves are amazing in the way that they are a keystone predator. And so they hold kind of everything together. They balance everything out. And I reached out, I can't even believe that he said yes, but I reached out to Rolf Peterson, who is like, if you're in the wolf world, he is the end all be all. Of, the wolf like, guy. He's, he's the wolf father, you know, he's like the godfather <laughs> of uh, he's the wolf yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. And he does a lot of work up in Isle Royal National Park. And he is the head of the longest running predator prey study in the world, actually, and it's located on Isle Royal National Park. He has studied the relationship between wolves and moose and how it affects the landscape, the environment, and other species that live in that environment. And it's just such a beautiful condensed study of a larger phenomenon that happens when wolves are present 
in Yellowstone, there's an amazing video. It's probably like 10 years old now, maybe. It's on YouTube. It's called How Wolves Change Rivers. And it's a condensed version of exactly what this keystone predator does. When they're there, they affect herbivores and ungulates like elk, deer, bison, who instead of just congregating in these big areas with no other big predators around that they have to worry about, they're completely decimating the grasslands and all the vegetation. The aspens don't get to grow as big because they're eating all the saplings. And then in turn, other species like songbirds and beavers, even different species of fish who rely on the waterways that are constructed by beavers, they all suffer because of this cascade effect. When there's no big top predator, the balance is thrown out of whack. And when we reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone and then a year later in Idaho, we saw those things change. And that is why having keystone predators is so important. Because yeah, we have grizzlies. Yeah, we have black bears. Yes, we have cougars. But they don't act the same way and have the same impact that wolves do. Yeah. And wolves are very like unique predators because of like the way that they are able to take down prey that like other predators of their size aren't necessarily able to. Mm-hmm. They, they fill in a very interesting role. And so to talk about that, if this is your first time ever listening to this podcast, our whole deal is that we review animals by rating them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. So starting with effectiveness, this is just things built into their body, physical adaptations that they have to let them do the things they're trying to do. Like you mentioned, this is a top shelf apex predator. Um, so this is going to be things that they have built in that let them catch their prey. Uh, what do you give gray wolves out of 10 for effectiveness? I have a couple thoughts with this because as far as their effectiveness, when you're looking at pure success rate, taking down a prey animal, whether it be an elk, a bison, a deer, whatever they're going after, generally they have overall a less than 20% success rate. It's not amazing. (laughs) Which isn't great. Um, But so they're not this like Anything that they have their eyes set on, they're going to take down, no problem. So overall, not the greatest statistic, (laughs) but obviously wolves have been around for thousands of years or, you know, versions of them. So obviously, they've worked it out enough to figure it out to stick around. So I would say I would give them a seven or an eight, depending on the day. That's good. That is decent. Okay, good. (laughs) Another thing I think of when I think of wolves is how like, you could have wolves that live like you mentioned an Arctic wolf, right? That lives way up in the Arctic Circle. And they're going to look really different from the wolves Mm -hmm. that you might find down further south, right? There's like wolves in, you know, the Southwest and like Mexico and stuff. So you'll see like this really wide variation between like, did you see that in the wolves that you worked with? Like this variation between like wolves in different places? Yeah. So I when I worked with them, they weren't hunting their own. Pre- they had things handed on a platter to them. Um, <laughs> little cushy lifestyle. <laughs> I will say if there was a rabbit that happened to venture too close or into their enclosures, then I saw them in action. And their enclosures were an acre to two acres each for a one to two wolves. So different wildlife would come in and So every once in a while, they'd get to be true wolves and catch something. But so at the center, we had, at the time I worked there, we had Arctic wolves, 
And we had gray wolves and fox and coyotes. But Arctic wolves are vastly different from Mexican gray wolves, which are the ones in Arizona and New Mexico that you were talking about. There's the red wolf, critically, critically endangered. There's less than 30 of them left in the world. They vary in size and Mexican gray wolves aren't going to be in these big packs that you see out in Yellowstone. So their success rate is going to go down, but their species that they're hunting are also different. There's no bison out there. There's no elk out there. But yeah, as far as success rate and things that would help them with that, obviously their size and power is a big part of it. I think there is a big misconception as far as how big people think wolves are. I agree. So I saw them in Woodland Park Zoo recently, and I don't normally get to see wolves. And I did have a moment where I was like, oh, that's how big they are? You know, like, you you think they're going to be like these, I guess, like dire wolves is what people maybe think of. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing is, is like, in the winter months, they grow in this big, luscious, thick winter coat. Love it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Yeah. When you (laughs) stick your hand in there and give them scratches when it's wintertime, you go through a lot of fluff and it makes them look a lot bigger than they are. Danielle, what I wouldn't give to stick my hand right in that fluff. (laughs) Oh, I'm a, you know, those like commercials for memory foam mattresses Mm -hmm. where they put like a wine glass down and then just sink their entire, like up to their elbow into the memory foam. That's what I want to do with Wolfer. (laughs) It's great. So they have you know, these longer, coarser guard hairs as kind of a top layer. But underneath, once you get under that, it's soft and fuzzy and warm. And um, it, when shedding season comes, it's <laughs> it's a lot. Uh, but that's the thing. It's like, it's so different. So if I had a tour group come in December, they're gonna be like, oh my gosh, those are massive. And they are, they look massive. De- also dependent on if it's a male or female, mm, females tend to be smaller. But in the summer, you're like, oh, that's it. Oh, that's oh, a okay. German Shepherd. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they're big animals, but they're not these giants that we see portrayed. And it also has to do with scale. I mean, there's mm. a meme or a gif or video going around <laughs> of me that I see every few years resurface. And it's always so funny to read the comments or whatever about it. And it's just me next to my favorite wolf. He has since passed away, but his name was Kikoa. And I look miniature because I'm (laughs) 5'3", I'm small, and he was one of the biggest wolves there. So it's all dependent. Yeah, I I guess if you have a small person next to a large wolf, then like, yeah, it's going to look more... If you stood one next to Shaq, I'm sure you'd be like, it's a chihuahua. (laughs) Actually, I have this picture. I keep this picture of Kikoa next to my desk and me. He's enormous. That's my friend Natea when she came to visit me. But yeah, he is my favorite. So he's obviously a bigger guy. Is she short? Yeah, she's taller than me, but she's not. But yeah, anyways, so one thing that I have seen that blows my mind when I see it, because it's not something that can like change throughout the year or something like that. Like they're, you know, they're, they can look bigger when their fur is longer or not. But one thing that stays constant is their paw size. Yes. And that Mm -hmm. is something that blows my mind every time I see it, because we're used to like dogs. When you see a wolf's paws, that's no joke. Those things are like the size of my face. (laughs) Yeah, they're pretty big. They're pretty big. And 
And the coolest variation, going back to the different types of wolves, Arctic wolves have webbing between their toes. Do they really? Yeah. So it helps act as a a bit of a snowshoe (gasps) because they're in a different environment. That's so cool. It makes so much sense now that you say that. But like, I'd never thought about that. That is really interesting. Yeah. And their fur is also different. So it's appears white. So it's very similar to a polar bear. Polar bears Mm. have dark skin and translucent hair. Same thing with the Arctic wolves. So it helps capture and retain heat. That's obviously very needed in the frigid temperatures. So, um, but that webbing is, I could consider advantageous to hunting prey, because if you're sinking in the snow, you're not going to be very effective. They always got like the the claws are kind of like cleats too, almost, right? Because it's not like cats have retractable claws, right? They're kind of, you know, suns out, guns out with their claws just 24-7. They can't like pull them back. So, but I guess if you're you're on the snow and the ice, it's kind of like having little built-in, what are those like spiky shoes that people wear in the snow? You know what I'm talking about? Snow spikes or crampons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's kind of like that. You know, I guess it, it probably helps them with traction, I would imagine. Traction for sure. And as far as hunting down and actually dispatching a prey animal, claws don't come into that big of a role like bears or cats where, you know, they're hooked and they're grabbing and pulling in. Wolves don't do that. Mm. It's all about the mouth with them, their canines and their shearing teeth, their carnasial teeth. So I wouldn't say that their claws are good for, you know, their prey, like in a tiger situation, but they do help with the traction and getting them where they need to go. And they can really get moving too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when they really run, they are zooming. So I can I can see how it would be helping them, you know, like push off of the ground because mm-hmm. they can really zoom. And they can sprint. So they're not great as far as longevity. They're not going to be able to sprint for long distances. However, they can reach up to about 30, 35 miles an hour um, in short sprints, short sprints. Um, They can't maintain that for a very long time. But the biggest thing that comes into their effectiveness as far as hunting and success rates is their brains and their social intelligence. Hey there, we are going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of the other shows on the Maximum Fund Network. When we get back, we are rating ingenuity and aesthetics for gray wolves. So stick around. Oh, Russ. Hey, hey. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad I found you in line. These clouds are really freaking me out. I hate having to stand in line. And boy, what a line. These giraffes do not smell good. No, they do not. And they have such short necks. But I'm hearing we need to get on this we arc. we got to get on the arc. It yeah. is about to rain. God is about to destroy humanity. Hey, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Are you Noah? Yeah, I know we look like humans, but we're actually, <laughs> yes, we're totally. podcasters. <laughs> we are podcasters, so it's different. Have you heard of Ono, Ross, and Carrie? We investigate spirituality, claims of the paranormal, stuff like that. And you have a boat and say the world's going to end, so it seemed like something for us to check out. We would love to be on the boat. We came two by two. What do you think? Ono, Ross, and Carrie, available on MaximumFun.org. Jordan Cruciola, the host of Feeling Seen, where we talk about the movie characters that make us feel seen. And I'm the show's producer, Marissa. Jordan, you've interviewed so many directors, actors, writers, film critics, and I like to play this little game where I take a sip of coffee every time someone says, that's such a great question. That's such a fabulous question. Or they tell you how smart you are. I think that you are rather brilliant. And of course, the big one is... When, when they, they cry, cry unexpectedly. unexpectedly, yes, yes. Jordan, I don't want to cry on your podcast. I wasn't expecting to <laughs> cry. I mean, it makes me kind of want to cry. <sighs> Feeling Seen comes out every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. Listen already. 
What are you waiting for? Jordan, that's such a great question. <laughs> Let's talk ingenuity for gray wolves, because I feel like this is where they're maybe making up for some of that. Uh, they're maybe not like the biggest and the bulkiest or the brawniest, but they make up for that. They compensate in in some of their behavior, which is uh, for us what we rate them for ingenuity, which is their behaviors and things that they're doing to solve problems that they face or, you know, thrive. So what do you give gray wolves out of 10 for ingenuity? I'm biased. I would say I would give them a nine to a 10. Amazing. I just think that they are astounding. Just their social dynamics, just even within their pack structure, their family hierarchy, the tests that have been done and studies that have been done with wolves are amazing and so interesting to read about because they pit them against domestic dogs. That's something we can relate to. It's like we see the intelligence of domestic dogs day in and day out. So it's something that we can really understand when it comes to, okay, the wolf is X compared to Y with a domestic dog. It's like, oh, yeah, I see my domestic dog doing this and this every day. Right. So, um, but when you read a study about chimpanzee intelligence or dolphin intelligence, you're like, that's cool, but I have no real marker to pit that against. And also, like, it's usually behaviors that we understand how to, like, interpret that behavior, right? Mm -hmm. It could be, like, maybe they're good at responding when we tell them to do something. Like, maybe they're good at, like, taking a command and, like, interpreting it and then doing what we expect them to do based on that. But, like, right. for a wolf, they're like, I don't care about doing the thing you want me to do. <laughs> so that is so funny you say that because that is such a big, in almost any study I've ever read about... <laughs> <laughs> about wolves. They say, yes, they're intelligent. They hit this, this, and this mark. We can extrapolate based on what we're seeing. We can get a good idea of their intelligence markers. However, they don't care about humans, so they don't care about performing the tasks. Right. It's like, they're like, they're like I know what you want me to do. I'm choosing not to do it. Like, it's like a cat. You know, like domestic cats are like, can I help you with something? <laughs> you know? So I find that a mark of intelligence, personally. Um, so going back to their social structures and dynamics, and they are excellent problem solvers. They've been shown to have reasoning skills, negotiation skills. They clearly have a capacity to learn from one another, teach one another. They've shared knowledge between individuals in their pack and through generations. Mm. It's just they have it all. I yeah. give them a 9 to 10 for that reason. And, you know, they work as a team to mm. take down prey and to live and survive. And, yeah. Since we're on the topic of their social hierarchy and their social structure, you know, something that I think you hear a lot about wolves is this idea of, like, the alpha, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the alpha male, the alpha female. And uh, something that I learned not not too long, almost like embarrassingly recently, was that, like <laughs> that whole concept of like the alpha female and the alpha male and then like subordinates that are like competing with each other to climb the ranks and stuff like that, that like that's largely a misinterpretation. It's outdated. Yeah. And I think that's a great point because it's something that I wouldn't say it's embarrassing to know that you just found that out because it is kind of relatively new. I mean, when I was first, first learning about wolves, that was something that was in the language and literature and how people referenced 
wolves. It feels like just something everybody knows, right? It's yeah. like one of those things. That's like, that's just how wolves are. <laughs> yeah, like the alphas, then you have the betas, and then you have the subordinates. And sure. Then, you know, it's just... It's something that we are, I think, as time goes on, we're learning more and more about how complex it really is. It isn't that simple. It's not like here are the alphas, here's the second in line, the betas, everybody else is subordinates. We're learning so much more about how complex their relationships are and social dynamics that that's why that language is kind of being filtered out. So now you'll hear a lot of this is the breeding pair, Mm. not the alphas. So typically there is a breeding pair of a pack and they have litters every spring and the pack is primarily made up of animals that are related to one another. So sons, daughters, uncles, aunts, grandparents, etc. Big happy family. Yeah, big happy family. They will have, obviously you can't do that forever, perpetually, because you're going to get inbreeding. Um, So that's where different lone wolves come in, different, you know, genetic material from other individuals, from other packs and other lineages will come in. But generally there's a breeding pair, a single breeding pair for a reason. And it's because if everyone's breeding with everyone else, there's going to be way too many puppies, not enough resources to go around, and not everyone's going to survive. I mean, not every puppy does survive anyways to adulthood, but if there was everyone having kids all over the place, there's not enough to go around. And it's just not advantageous to do that. That makes sense, right? Because especially with the way that wolves, you know, raise their young and dedicate so much energy and resources to them. You know, mm-hmm. like they're they're really investing a lot in each puppy. So you can't have unlimited puppies, right? When you're just mm-hmm. when when you're putting a lot into every single one, then that kind of yep. limits how many you can have at once. Yes, exactly. If you've ever seen footage of there's awesome aerial footage of wolves especially in the snow because it's easier to track them you know it's not so there's aerial footage and you'll see you know say a herd of bison and you'll see the wolves because wolves aren't ambush predators generally speaking they're not a lone tiger or lion kind of like hanging out in the tall grass and yeah they'll get as close as they can but they don't rely on getting close and a surprise attack they are picking out You'll watch them literally study this herd and pick out a young, sick, injured animal, the easiest one to go after. And you can see them. They'll all start in this group and formation or a line, and then they all break off into different areas and flush out this individual and kind of separate them from the herd so they're easier to pick off. And that requires teamwork, number one. Yeah, And number two, you can just see them. If you study a wolf that's studying, or any animal that's studying, you know, a potential prey, you can just see it working behind Mm -hmm. their eyes and their ears are flicking around and taking in all the, you know, is this worth it? Am I going to get injured? Mm. That's another thing. You got to pick your battles. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because if you get, I mean, there's always a risk you run. If you're going to get kicked in the head or in the jaw, you have a broken jaw you're probably not going to live or a broken leg. So they have to really weigh. It's like a cost-benefit analysis every single time. You see the math flying around their head. Like, (laughs) 
Yes, that, um, what is it, up from the hangover? Have you seen that guy? He's, like, doing all these calculations in his and mind. just flying around his head yeah. and stuff. That's what I'm imagining. They're like, Do yeah. I, is this worth getting kicked in the teeth? Yep, yep, exactly. It's like, I have a family to feed. I'm going to starve. I have to do it. But, yeah, it's amazing to watch them work together. And I think that's a big part of why I'm so interested in them because every animal is amazing, I think, in some way, shape, or form. But animals that work cohesively as a team, there's just another added layer to that that is fascinating. And it lets them bring down prey that they wouldn't be able to bring down by themselves, right? Like, you can see, like, a pack of wolves could take down something massive that, like, mm-hmm. uh, just one, you know, wolf or, or one, I don't know, bear or one mountain lion. Like, they probably wouldn't be able to take it down. But but wolves, I feel like wolves are scarier because of, it's it's like, okay, so if you're watching a scary movie, like a horror movie, they're walking mm-hmm. down the dark hallway, oh, no, jump scare, something jumps out at you, run away. Okay, that's like, okay, fine, that's scary for a second. But if it's like a long, like a slow burn tension building, like you can see that the monster or whatever is like following you and just getting closer and closer and closer and won't give up. And then there's like, they're closing on you. Like, it's just like the building of tension. That Mm -hmm. seems like so much scarier to me. It is scarier. Oh no, ambush predator, here you are. But like the wolves almost feel like, I feel like that's got to be like, as soon as you see them, you're like, oh, it's game over. (laughs) Yeah, that's, it's funny, Cassie and I, we get this question a lot on our podcast. Like if you had to go from an animal, what would it be? And I always, if I knew I was going to perish, a big cat because you don't see it coming it's over they go for your neck it's, it's done like it's usually from behind if they know what they're doing and it's it lights uh, out lights out you're done but yeah there's different animals that i would rather not have to go uh <laughs> in that way and wolves would probably be one of them i like that they're like we're not gonna bother with stealth we don't have the stealth game let's just uh listen you know i'm here we know we're here come on let's we're make rolling this up you know 10 <laughs> strong you see us yeah exactly <laughs> it's got to be terrifying to see a pack of wolves close around and be like oh no you start looking around and all your other herd members like if you're like a, an elk or something you start looking around like oh no is it me <laughs> Yeah, it's like, am I it? Is this it? You start looking around like, how's everybody else feeling today? Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. I know. Exactly. Yeah. Nature's rough, man. Yeah. But, okay. So I also wanted to talk about, you know, like, it's it's not just all hunting all the time, right? Like, they also Mm -hmm. have these really, like, beautiful and tender, like, interactions with their other, like, pack mates and, and with other wolves and stuff like that. You know, like, we think about, like, you know, they're howling to like communicate mm-hmm. over these like huge distances, which clearly they're not worried about stealth there. <laughs> like, no, they are not. <laughs> they're like yeah. sounding an alarm like, hey, everybody, we're over here. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, their vocalizations are, th- I stand by the statement that a wolf howl is one of the most beautiful things that you can ever hear. And you feel it. You, f- you feel it. It vibrates your soul. <laughs> There's got to be some like ancient, like ancestral like reasoning for this. Obviously, the relationship between humans and wolves goes back thousands of years. So maybe that plays a part in it. And at first, I used to always think I was biased. It's like, oh, I just, they're cool animals. I love them. Obviously, this is a beautiful sound. But without fail... So at the end of every tour that we would do at the Wolf Center, I would do a group howl. So there's a particular way that 
you can howl to get everyone else howling. Oh, really? And so we would stand up at this like vantage point that overlooks the majority of the animals that we just kind of did a walking path through their enclosures. And we would end and I would say, would you like to do a group howl? So I, I would you know, instruct them how to do it. I would start it and then I would have everyone howl at the same time and you'd all be quiet. And then everyone, all the wolves, even the coyotes would chime in and you could hear the difference of their yips and yaps based on, and then the deep howls of the wolves. And without fail, favorite part of the tour for I would every cry. single person. I would cry immediately. Many people have cried. <laughs> I can cry thinking about it because it's so beautiful it's haunting it's inspiring it's and as you know the years went on i could tell whose howl was whose because they all have different voices like we have different voices and yeah their their communication with one another is awesome to witness and like even their body language you know you can tell when they're snippy or when they're playful or if they're egging someone on or you know it's just (laughs) They're very social animals, and you're right. It's not always like hunt, kill, eat. Right. That's all we do. It's not all carnage all the time. Right. Sometimes they're enjoying their downtime. Yeah, which is a lot of the time. And, you know, just watching them play and goof off, and they all have different personalities. You know, it's seen in, you know, people who study wild wolves as well. I mean, it's not just captive wolves that we see this in. One thing that I that I read recently for a few months ago, we did a, an episode on D&D classes, and I talked about gray wolves for the warlock class. Sorry to everybody who hasn't listened to that yet. Spoiler alert. But uh, one of the things I talked about in that is that because the idea is that in, in Dungeons and Dragons, warlocks have this magical power that derives from their relationship to an entity. Like maybe they have like a demon or a, you know, some sort of, you know, fiend or, or god or something that they have like an alliance with that they draw power from. And I talked about their relationship with crows and ravens. Oh, very nice angle. Love that. <laughs> about how, you know, crows and wolves will work together where crows mm-hmm. will like you know, use their vantage point from up in the sky to see maybe like an elk that's not looking so hot or, you know, a little baby, I don't know, bison or something that like, oh, this looks like something my wolf buddies could take down. And the crows would lead the wolf to the prey and then the wolf would take the prey down and then maybe the wolf would like be okay with the crow picking on their prey a little bit. They'll be like, yeah, Mm -hmm. you can have some, like give them a cut. Like give them a, right. a little a little cut of the spoils. Probably my favorite thing that I read while I was researching that was about how specific individual wolves would develop a friendship with a specific individual crow. So like, you know, crows are kind of like they're very mischievous and playful. Like they like to like yank on other animals' tails all the time because mm-hmm. like, they're they're just being weird like that. But like yep. wolves, it seems like they will the crow will go up and like pull the wolf's tail, and the wolf will like pull their punch. They'll like snap at the crow but you can tell that they're not really like you can tell they're playing like they won't really fully jump at them and try to actually like you know get rid of them they just kind of like do a little nip like your dog might when you're playing with them but like they would have this like specific like that is my specific friend crow like that's the one that i know and like we're buddies (laughs) yeah and it's so funny because Crows, ravens, corvid, the whole corvid family are also amazingly intelligent. So it's no wonder that two extremely intelligent beings are teaming up in that way. 
game recognizes game. That's right. That is an unstoppable combo. <laughs> so since we were talking about, you know, the haunting, like the beauty and the and just how like emotional we can feel when we're like around wolves and and getting to share space with them, uh, let's talk aesthetics oh, for wolves. Ten. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Not even a question. <laughs> Right? Like, I, I've now seen wolves, you know, in, in zoos and things like that in person. And you can tell, right, that there's something different about them. If you're like really used to dogs, you can really tell that like the features aren't quite the same. Like, I, I know over time, dogs evolved muscles in their face to communicate non-verbally with humans like like eyebrow mm-hmm. muscles and and mouth muscles to make them more expressive in a way that a human could interpret better and wolves don't have that at all right so like they're no. much more stone cold yeah it's like <laughs> inscrutable it's so hard to read them like was that something that you felt like when you were around the wolves I would say yes and no, because you're absolutely right. They are 100% different. They aren't as expressive as your dog mm-hmm. would be. Just different tweaks of the face that you you don't even really recognize your dog doing until you are in the presence of a wolf. You're yeah. like, oh. But they do have clear indicators other body language wise of if they're upset, if they're being territorial, if they're happy, if they're being playful, you know, ear position, their mouth obviously changes the way that their body and their tail are. There's different giveaways that when you're around them enough, you pick up on. It's just it's just different than a dog. And obviously, there's huge similarities as well. But I would say, yeah, 100%. They're they don't wear their emotions on their face like a dog does. Right. You have to work harder to like you understand do. them. It's not they're not they're not as easy to read. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people when I say I worked with, especially with that, those videos and things of me that are online with Kikoa and Sakara and a couple of the other wolves. I, it's not like going in an enclosure with your dog. And mm-hmm. even though, yeah, sometimes they roll over, they want belly rubs, they're playful, they nuzzle up to you, go between your legs. You always have to read the situation that comes with reading their body language too. There'd be some days I go up to their enclosure and like want to go in and see them. And I'm just like, not today. Not going to do that today. Vibes are off. (laughs) Vibes are off. And not that I was ever, you know, afraid for my bodily safety. You know, like, it's not like, you know, you don't hear of people going in and interacting with tigers for a reason. Right. You know. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's not like I had that sense or feeling. It's just using common sense. These are still wild animals at heart. Yeah, they're socialized. They're not domesticated. When you see an animal in an enclosure, even if they have some sort or some degree of interaction with people on a daily basis, they're not domestic animals. They're habituated and used to human presence and interactions with humans, but that doesn't mean that they're not still wild. And it's super important to respect that and understand that. This makes me want to go back to something that you mentioned briefly at the top. Um, Photo farms. Yeah. What is that? What's a photo farm? So photo farms are places that are really, really popular in tourist destinations like Las Vegas, Myrtle Beach are kind of the top two that I think of. But um, so essentially, when you see pictures online of people with baby animals, like lion cubs, tiger cubs, wolf puppies, baby chimps, things like that. Things that make you stop and think, I don't think you're supposed to be doing that. 
yeah, like maybe think twice about that. So there are places, facilities that have access to animals that they breed over and over and over. And while the baby animals, whatever they are, fox, wolves, whatever, when they're babies and you can handle them, they charge people to come and take a photo with them and play with them for 20 minutes. And obviously that's not great for a few reasons, but what ends up happening in a large amount of cases is you really think that these 10 wolf puppies or lion cubs that they have every season at this photo farm are going to live happily ever after in a sanctuary for the next 15 years. There's no space for that. Right. Like those 10 puppies are going to become 10 full grown wolves that we now need to figure out what to do with. Right. So that perpetuates a lot of other issues. So either they're euthanized right away, they're killed as soon as they are become unhandleable by people. If they start, you know, clawing or biting or getting rambunctious and being an animal, that's it. It's not a moneymaker anymore. So they're either euthanized or they're given to people in the pet trade that Mm. are like, "Mm, it's legal to own a tiger here. So I guess I'll keep it in my backyard. So they either end up killed at a very young age or put into the hands of people who try and keep them as pets, which is also not the vibe is off on that. Not uh, good. Not great. And they end up in really, really bad situations. And of course, irresponsible ownership perpetuates a bad image for the animal overall. Like, oh, this tiger got loose and killed someone's dog. Right. And then the, the tiger pays for that. Yeah. You know, it's like things like that. Um, so photo farms are places that just perpetually breed young animals for the opportunity to, for people to come take a photo with them, play with them for 15 minutes, and then go on with their lives. And that and that animal ends up paying the price. And I think if you're hearing this and you think, oh, no, I did something like that, you know, or like, if that's something that sounds familiar to you or something like you probably were not told that, yeah. right? Like, this is all information I think is not known to a lot of people. Like, a lot of people don't really realize what's going on behind the scenes of a lot of these places. So just now you know, right? Like, now you know the sort of background behind what that's all about and have that context for, like, if you see something like that, you can know better now. <laughs> yeah, and that's something that I say a lot is when you know better, you do better. Right. Not We weren't born knowing this information. Yeah. And a lot of us were born when these things were normal and acceptable things to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like there's a lot of going to the circus and seeing animals perform in circus environments was not even questioned when I was a kid in the right, 90s. This is a thing you do. You know what I mean? It's like I wasn't raised in, in a time that people were starting to kind of pause and say, hmm, is this really the best that we could be doing? Right. That's something that has come up over the recent years. And you just have to think about what you're doing. And that's all we can ask of people when it comes to animals, I think, is just stop, educate yourselves and make a more informed decision because no one is born knowing this stuff. No. And, you know, as far as if we're zooming out and looking more at what the situation looks like for wild wolves, you know, like out where they live and in places where they're being reintroduced or, or trying to, you know, we're trying to help their populations recover after having being, you know, intentionally 
removed from places. I was going to ask if you have any sort of like final pieces of advice, like things that, that like the average person listening could take away for like, if you also love wolves, right? If you're, if you're, a lot of us have had wolf kid phases. I was so deep in a wolf kid phase. Um, yeah. If you are really passionate, you do really love wolves. And there is something that, like, if you feel this uh, drive or a need to, you know, do something to help them, like, I was wondering if you had any sort of advice for like, the typical everyday person? Oh, that's a good question. I think my biggest piece of advice and the thing that I have learned over my own time being involved with wolves and my own learning is to be understanding. So the biggest thing that we, I believe we could do for wild wolves is not only educate people, because wolves don't need our help on their own. Like if we just left them alone, they would be just fine. Like they don't need us, but they do need us in the way of having the space and opportunity to be wolves. And the only way we can do that in this present time and in the future is being understanding of where different people are coming from because a lot of their hope for survival lays on a lot of people who don't like them. And a lot of the spaces that they need to live and survive are occupied by a lot of farmers and ranchers. And that is where a lot of this conflict comes into play. And when I first started working with wolves, I was like, I don't get it. Why do people not like wolves? They were here before us. They belong. End of story. And I've changed my tune a lot with that. I still believe that wholeheartedly. But the reality is we live here too. It's not just these places where wolves have hope of repopulating aren't all going to be Yellowstone National Park. They're going to be people's backyards. And a lot of that is, you know, farming and ranching land. And we just need to be open to finding solutions of non-lethal conflict mm -hmm. and understanding that there is space for both of us, but we can't be doing it the same way that we historically have been doing with, you know, shoot, shovel, shut up mentality. It's just not going to work. But at the same time, you can't be on the other end of the spectrum of not understanding that people need to make a livelihood either. Yeah, you got to feed your family. You got to feed your family. If you have been a rancher or a farmer for you're the fifth generation, right? you know, you're not going to welcome a wolf pack with open arms. But there needs to be a middle ground. So I think that the best advocate for a wild wolf is someone that is understanding of all sides and can reach a middle ground that works for both people and the animals because that's the only hope, I think, for a successful future for the wolf in at least the lower 48 states right. as it stands. It's a really crucial human element there is. To, to conservation that uh, we can't lose sight of. Right. And I think a lot of people who love animals, it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard to keep that in mind because it's like you're just so pro wolf or pro bear or pro, you know, whatever. It's always mm -hmm. the predators that have the hardest time, obviously. Right. Um, but it's hard to kind of make that balance because a lot of conservation is dealing with people and not everyone is going to have your same mindset and just being open to striking a deal honestly yeah. that's kind of what it is and if there's hope for wolves we need to be understanding of people 
gentle parenting for the environment. <laughs> right, right. It's like, okay, do you want to learn a little bit more about them? And like, maybe we can figure something out. Get some, yeah, figure something out. There's a lot of non-lethal methods that a lot of people in when I lived in Washington were starting to implement because wolves are making a comeback in Washington and will be in Colorado in the next year or two. So I hope to see a lot more of that and see how that kind of evolves over time. And a lot of what you talk about on your podcast is this overlap between humans that maybe go out into natural spaces and then experience conflict there. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not always it's not always a uh, completely relaxing and eventless, you know, it's always a, a literal walk in the park. Before we wrap up today, can you let people know a little bit about National Park After Dark? Yeah, sure. So I co-host a podcast called National Park After Dark with Cassie. And we started this about two years ago now. That is a meteoric rise. Like two years is not a long time. (laughs) Yeah, Um, about two years ago. So we have always loved the outdoors, outdoor spaces. Obviously, you learned a little bit about me, but Cassie, same thing. She's just very into, you know, if she could live outside, she probably would. So we just always went hiking together. We we met and developed our friendship at work. She was also a vet tech. And on our days off, we would just go hiking and be outdoors. And I, if you recall, have a little bit of a morbid fascination with the world as well. Death, dying, not the greatest and sunshine and rainbows parts of uh, the world. Sure. And I would twist that with, you know, where we were. Like, it'd be like, oh, did you know that? Like, someone died here or this happened here or – and she was equally as fascinated. So it kind of developed into this thing of, like, we should start a podcast about this and maybe other people are interested. And over time, you know, we started with we're going to do a true crime podcast that just has to do with national parks. And it's evolved over time to be so much more than that. And we are so happy. You know, there's everything from animal attacks, dark history. Obviously, there's some true crime in there, survival stories, conservation-based stories. And it's just taken a life of its own. And we just do, you know, any national park unit, historic site here in the U.S., around the world. There are so many fascinating stories that the National Park Service holds. And we're just talking about them. That's awesome. I feel like anybody who uh, maybe enjoys some of our more, some of our darker episodes <laughs> may may appreciate yeah. that. For anybody that's listening that wants to go, like where, where can people find like your podcast or your social media or, or like where would you like to be found? Yeah. So the podcast is on pretty much every platform. There is Spotify, Apple, um, our big ones. And then you can find us on social where we heavily use Instagram. We try with Facebook and other things, but we're not the best, you know, tech savvy people. I feel that. Yeah, it's hard. Um, So Instagram (laughs) uh, is National Park After Dark, and you can find us there. We release episodes every Monday and every other Thursday. Awesome. And I'll have links to everything in the episode description. So anybody listening that's curious can uh, scroll down and, and click through. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. This has been an amazing time. Thank you so much for talking to me about wolves. Of course. I hope I did them justice. Oh, couldn't have asked for better. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> I'll see you later, Danielle. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 
Thank you so much for listening, friends. I hope that the gray wolf has left its giant paw prints all over your heart. If you liked what you heard today, I hope you leave behind some kind words for us in a review on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to hang out with us online, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Discord. Links to everything will be in the episode description. You can send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have a cool animal you'd like to hear about on the show. We'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network, alongside their other wonderful shows like the ones you heard promos for here today. You can check them out and learn more about the network and how you can be a part of supporting our show over at MaximumFun.org. Finally, we'd like to thank Louis Zong for our theme music. That's all for today. See you next week. Thanks. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.